Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. And Ruth is here with us in the studio. Richard Hill, also here in the studio with us this morning, is host of WP Can Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. He's also a rotating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPK's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, and producer of the syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth, Ann, and Richard are contributors. We'll be joined this morning uh, by Nation Magazine's national correspondent, John Nichols, to talk about the Republican Party's chaotic first week after taking over the U.S. House of Representatives and a preview of the extremist right-wing political theater we'll be subjected to over the next couple of years. To begin with, Richard and Ruth, how are you both doing this first Resistance Roundtable program of the new year? Well, I, I seem to be doing fine. So far, so good, as the, that adorable little girl with the sick father uh, made herself famous for saying, uh, so far, so good, Scott. That's good to hear. I know uh, 2022 has been rough for a lot of us. <laughs> um, Richard, how you been doing? I'm doing okay. I, I think I'm compass mentos this morning. I, I like that. Is that Latin? <laughs> I, I, I think it's actually, well, let's, I defer to Ruth right. on this. All right. we'll Latin s- it is. We'll form a committee. <laughs> okay. Well, right now I'm, I'm very happy uh, that John Nichols is joining our first program of the new year. As many of you are aware, John uh, writes about politics for the nation as the magazine's national affairs correspondent. John is also a contributing writer for the Progressive Magazine, In These Times Magazine, and associate editor of the Capital Times, the daily newspaper of Madison, Wisconsin. John is the author of many books. Recent titles include Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, and the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. Also, he's uh, author of Horsemen of the Trump Apocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. And John, thank you so much for making time to come on our Resistance Roundtable program this morning. It's an honor to be with you. I uh, it, This is the first show of the year? This is our first show of the year. Yeah. Well, I'm very, doubly honored to 
start the season. Well, I'm glad you're you're here to talk with us uh, about uh, Washington and what's going to emanate from Washington in the next couple of years. With a very narrow majority in the House, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party are now clearly beholden to the extremist white supremacist wing of the GOP. In order to win his post as Speaker of the House after 14 failed uh, ballots, what concessions, John, did, did Kevin McCarthy make to people like Matt Gates, uh, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, and about 17 other members of the so-called Freedom Caucus? And what impact will it have on the critical issues facing the country? I'll just mention that among the things that these guys are, are planning to do, they well, they first of all had some votes on, on abortion. Uh, they're planning to investigate Dr. Fauci. And they got rid of the metal detectors. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, uh, those are those are all the kind of surface level things that have occurred. But then you should also uh, uh, go to the kind of heart of the matter, I guess, which is that um, in the concessions that were made initially, uh, that finally got uh, Kevin McCarthy the votes he needed to become uh, Speaker of the House, he traded away his ability to kind of maintain steady control of the caucus. And any Speaker of the House has a dual responsibility. They run the House of Representatives, as you know, and that's a a nonpartisan responsibility, really. But the second responsibility is, of course, to be the key figure within your own caucus, to make sure that the members of your caucus do the things that they need to do, um, you know, as issues arise. And, you know, what he bartered off was his ability to say to caucus members, look, we got to get together on this. We've got to be united. And among the other things that he gave them was the ability for one member, a single member, to basically pull the brakes on the process and say, nope, we have to have another vote on who's going to be Speaker of the House. That opens up kind of an avenue for chaos unless McCarthy defers on a regular basis to his caucus. Uh, Ultimately, I think he is going to defer. So we've ended up with the weakest speaker probably in the modern history of the Congress. And at the same time, a situation where a small grouping within the Republican caucus, remember the Republican caucus as a whole is extremely right wing. There's no question of that. But there's a small grouping within it that is um, really determined to sort of blow things up. And even though they're nowhere near a majority of the caucus, they've got the ability to disrupt in a way and and deny majorities in a way that basically requires McCarthy to be deferent to them. So you end up with weakest speaker and the strongest extreme wing of uh, a political party in a circumstance like this, again, in modern history. Thank you for that, John. Uh, Richard, Ruth, question? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking we, we breathed a, a small um, judicious sigh of relief after the elections, thinking, well, there is, is no red tide after all, and we're not going to be jerked around by the extremists, and lo and behold, I guess we are. Um, <laughs> is, there, is there anything we can do, John, to, to uh, mitigate that? Well, so, Ruthanne, you're kind of making us feel like Groundhog Day, here, <laughs> uh, which is coming up. So be, be comfortable that you're, you're right on top of the, uh, 
uh, calendar moments. Um, yeah, there are some things that can be done, but unfortunately, they're not things that are going to be. Uh, they won't move us toward economic or social or racial justice or toward you know some sort of functioning governance. Uh, they can mitigate against some of the worst aspects of this. Uh, but they can't, you know, Democrats are not going to be in a position where, at least as we can tell at this point, to, uh, you know, do much. And so let's put that in perspective. Uh, because the House is under Republican control and, frankly, quite deferent to its most extreme wing, it's unlikely you're going to see a lot of compromise with the Senate. There are Republicans in the House who would work with Democratic senators. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily work on every issue, but they would do so on some fundamentals, keeping the government running, maybe taking care of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, some other fundamental issues. But uh, because of this extreme right wing uh, sort of what's a proper term, you know, kill switch, if you will, mm-hmm. um, you've got a problem there. What Democrats can do is uh, use the Senate to achieve all the things that a Senate can do. Remember, they have a clear majority in the Senate now clearer than they had in the last Congress. So they've got the ability to approve judges, to approve appointments, to do investigations, to do oversight via the Senate. They should use that at a much higher level. They basically supercharge the Senate because it's under their control. They should also use the bully pulpit. And they have the presidency. They have uh, the Senate. They also have sort of a clarity within the House. Remember that Democratic caucus held together through all 14, 15 of those votes uh, for the speakership. With that understood, um, they have an ability to speak as a united caucus. That, in combination with the presidency and the Senate, gives them an ability to put issues on the table. And theoretically, not certainly, but theoretically, if they can amplify issues that are extremely popular, that have kind of overwhelming support, they might be able to scare, for lack of a better term, enough Republicans into doing the right thing. And so it's via that bully pulpit route that it is possible you could get to some agreements between the House and Senate. But again, I say that very cautiously because I think it's going to be incredibly hard. Me too. John, this is Richard. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we know that this this craziness in the House has a uh, two-year expiration date, and it's yeah. very likely that there's going to be a turnover in the next election cycle. But what is it that the Republicans could accomplish, given that the Senate can—the Senate will probably not accept any of their radical proposals, and of course, if it did reach the White House, Biden would, would veto them— what is their strategy here? Is there anything rational going on? Oh, yeah, I think there's a strategy. Uh, and and I dare say that, that some people would call it rational. Um, and that is that they are trying to leverage the Republican control of the House to transform the Republican Party. And in some cases, they simply want to transform the Republican Party into something that's more different to them personally. Um, and I think you see a lot of that with Matt Gates and a couple other members. In other cases, uh, and, and Gates sort of 
also fits in this category. Uh, these are really deeply ideological people, and they believe that an extreme right-wing uh, nationalist Republican Party, more comparable to a lot of what you've seen in Europe, but in places like Hungary, to some extent, uh, with the you know Front National and in in France and and what you've seen developing in Italy, um, you know they see. A comparable situation here where they want to move their party extremely to the right and then hope to capitalize off, uh, you know, maybe difficult moments in history, uh, an electoral standoff where that right wing party could come to power. Now, that's a lot of hoops to jump through. First is to take over the Republican Party. Uh, Second, it's making that party viable in November elections, which I think is very, very difficult. In fact, the results of 2018, 2020, 2022 suggest uh, not doable. But that's clearly where they're coming from, Richard. And so, uh, in a sense, the way to understand it is they're playing a long game. Uh, I don't think they anticipate they're going to win a lot of legislative fights in this cycle. Um, What they hope for is a situation where um, they capture the party, capture the imagination of uh, both Republicans and some swing voters, and then ultimately get a Republican president in 2024, at which point then they would be in a position to potentially move some of the more extreme things that they're in support of. So it sounds like it's it's basically performance art that's going on. Well, it, it, performance art in a political context. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and, and remember, uh, Liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, all engage in this at different times. They're in a point where they're relatively, perhaps extremely disempowered, um, and they make the argument that the reason their party is not as strong as it should be is because it hasn't been clear enough in its stance on the issues. And so they're going to, yes, use an element of performance art to produce that clarity, to make the House uh, a steady source of a much more right-wing, you and I might call it extreme right-wing positions on the issues. And their argument will be that that will capture the imagination of the American people and empower Republicans. They're going to get a lot of pushback on that, um, not only from, you know, Democrats and and from, from liberals, they'll also get pushback from within the Republican Party. Because remember, the Republican Party has not won a majority of the votes for president of the United States, um, you know, since George Bush, I believe, I think he got over in in 20 in 2004. Um, So it's a long time since they've won a majority of the presidential vote. And also they've had a a very unsteady um, circumstance in the House and Senate. They've had the House and Senate at some times, but they've tended to lose it. Um, and so I think they're going to have a, certainly a wing within the Republican Party that is going to say, don't move this far to the right. But um, clearly, from the votes of the speakership, as well as the rules votes that, that came or rules vote that came almost immediately afterward, um, they're not going to compromise. They, they have a clear agenda. They have a clear direction they want to go in. And that is going to influence the House of Representatives very much over the next two years. John, as, as you just said, because the Democrats control the Senate and the White House, it's not likely that uh, McCarthy and the Republican House will be able to pass, you know, any legislation. But they do have at least one consequential leverage point with uh, House approval being necessary to increase the federal debt ceiling. Yes. If there's any doubt 
that the debt limit won't be increased, financial markets and consumer confidence will be shaken. And as we saw in a similar situation in 2011, it led to the first ever downgrade of the U.S. sovereign debt rating by Standard & Poor's. Kevin McCarthy and others in the Republican Party have stated their intention to hold the debt ceiling hostage in order to blackmail Democrats and Biden into agreeing to make deep cuts to Social Security and Medicare benefits. What, if anything, can Democrats or the country at large do to avert a further shredding of the nation's social safety net or an economic meltdown? Two very separate but not completely unrelated uh, topics there. Um, first, let's let's go to the core of what you're saying. There is clearly a grouping within the Republican Party that is absolutely committed to making it difficult to get those what are what were historically relatively perfunctory agreements to raise the the debt ceiling. Um, that's that's going to be a fight, and it's going to be a line in the sand issue. They're clearly going to try and force the uh, Democrats through chaos to accept cuts and, and uh, reductions. The Democrats are not going to go along with that um, at, at any at any level, I don't think, because it's A, uh, wrong, but B, also politically incredibly unpopular. They don't want to be a part of that sort of uh, gambit. And that would cause, as the Republicans know, divisions within the Democratic Party. Um, so that's going to be a fight. There are also going to be fights on individual budget items, uh, efforts by this Republican House, to uh, deny funding via the budget process to particular departments, to particular appointees. And and you're going to see a lot of what Richard correctly refers to as performance art there, but some of those could come to a head and actually become serious issues. So that's that's all the budget stuff is going to be severe and and quite consequential. At the same time, um, you're going to have uh, you know, a, a lot of, of efforts to, um, you know, suggest that Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid are, uh, you know, somehow in, in trouble, that they're 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 they need to be cut. They need to either raise the really what you're talking about here is raising the retirement age, uh, perhaps up, you know, getting much closer to 70, um, you know, reducing benefits in those earlier ages, things of that nature, all things that are going to be really harmful to working class people. And remember, we have a lot of people in this country uh, who are working now in their early to mid 60s um, in tough jobs, in in backbreaking jobs, and and they need to retire at a certain point. It is it is both physically and practically appropriate, and it's good for society as well because as older workers retire, that creates openings for younger workers to come in. You know, it just it, it keeps the process of the economy working in a lot of good ways, and so. Um, the Republicans are wrong on this issue, but they'll press it. And uh, it it's one that this is a place where I think Democrats, again, have to use that bully pulpit. They have to make it absolutely clear what is at stake here. And one of the things to remember is that Social Security is popular not just with old folks and not just with people who either themselves or family members with disabilities and other needs. Um, Social Security is extremely popular with young people. Young people want that that social safety net. They want to have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid in place for when they get older. Uh, they want it for their parents, for their grandparents. And so this is not that hard an issue to fight. I mean, when you, when you go out uh, to the American people, you're going to see astounding poll numbers in favor of protecting Social Security. Now, to do that, 
Democrats can't just say, oh, we're for Social Security, Republicans are against it. They have to have some clear plan. And that clear plan, obviously, is to raise the contribution level from the very, very wealthy so that those who are rich, uh, you know, contribute more to Social Security, uh, you know, just in a, in a classic progressive uh, model. Uh, it's not that hard to address the challenges facing Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid um, as long as you hold to a progressive model for how you you get the resources for it. Democrats should just go out and talk about that. You know, it used to be Social Security and Medicare, uh, you know, attacking those programs was the third rail of politics, as they often called it. But the Republicans seem to be, you know, I I don't know, suicidal here, because if if the media and the Democrats tell the truth about what they're doing, it's it's not going to be good for the Republicans' future. No, it's not. And um and rest assured, there are Republicans who know that. Um, this is an important thing to understand. Um, what we're talking about here is not uh, a circumstance where uh, the whole of the Republican Party is in, you know, in league with those who are going to the extremes. There are, are many Republicans who are very, very conservative, who might even uh, go after some elements of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but they don't want to make that a central theme of what they're doing once they get control of Congress. And so um, for the Democrats, if they make this a bully pulpit issue, if they make this a national issue that everyone is talking about, then you create those divisions within the Republican caucus and, you know, likely uh, make it easier to protect and preserve Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. But you can't do that as an inside-the-beltway, backroom negotiation kind of circumstance. That doesn't work. This is one of those issues that, you know, Biden's got to address the nation. Democratic members of the House and Senate have to be on the same page. They have to be talking, you know, in a very coherent way to the whole country. And if you're looking for a reference point on this, it's somebody on the other side. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, often had circumstances where he his party was not in control of the governing process. And so Reagan would go and speak to the country. Now, he didn't always succeed, but he sometimes did. And um, I'm not suggesting that, that Biden is as, uh, is, as, is as capable a uh, communicator as Reagan was. Reagan was, as they said, the great communicator, and it was very effective for him. But Biden has the presidency. He has, I think, a sincerity when he speaks about these issues. Um, and, I, and I think that, again, he, in combination with members of the House and Senate, can be very effective in highlighting these issues and really creating a circumstance where it becomes untenable for Republicans to, you know, push forward on, on assaults on, on what are, yes, incredibly popular programs. We're speaking with John Nichols, Nation Magazine National Cor- National uh, Correspondent, and we're very happy he's here with us today. Richard. I do have a follow-up, John, on, on the Social Security Medicare issue. I seem to recall that in the last debt crisis that occurred where the, the government actually reached the brink, and I think there was a shutdown for some period of time, did the Democrats, and let's not forget that there are many conservative Democrats in the Senate, it's, yep. it's not a monolithic progressive <laughs> juggernaut, were there concessions made by the Democrats on Social Security Medicare back during the, those negotiations? Uh, not, not particularly major ones, but yes, there have been concessions. Remember, uh, one of the things to understand is that there has been a, you know, a, 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 there's always a ticking up of the 
retirement age when it should be ticking down. I mean, that's uh, one of the best ways to, um, you know, protect working class people is to allow them, not require them, but allow them to retire at, at an age which uh, may be necessary or frankly, just make their lives easier and better. And so uh, there's a, it's, it's not so much a, a overwhelming con- concession uh, where you really got out the program or something like that, but it is just a directional concession. And, and Democrats have been more cautious uh, uh, sometimes than they should be on these issues. Remember back when Barack Obama was president, there was uh, a talk about, you know, chained benefits, you know, ID, it, it's oh, complicated yes. stuff. But you just understand that, that what they were talking about was this concept that, that you know, uh, there would be some limits on increases to combat inflation and, and other challenges that come forward. And so, yeah, Democrats are not perfect on this issue by any means. Uh, but in a fight like this with the Republicans, they need to be perfect. <laughs> or at least they need to be very, very strong. And, and I think that the place to go for is to say not just that you're opposed to cuts, but that you favor improvement of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, making it more of a real social welfare program, something closer to a national pension, which we're not at by any means at this point. And then also at the same time, um, you know, understanding that this is a big deal where you put that retirement age. uh, And if you move it towards 70, toward older ages, um, that really does uh, create a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. On, on people who have tough jobs and are in, in tough circumstances. So um, I think the, the Democrats have a lot of space in which to talk here. And you, you are right, Richard, to uh, warn that it's a dangerous game if they get into this sort of negotiation where the Republicans are saying, yeah, let's cut a lot. And the Democrats say, well, let's cut a little. At the end of the day, that's a bad, that's a bad place to begin because uh, ultimately those who want to cut have already won if it's a negotiation about how much to cut. Yeah. Indeed. Um, John, it seems to me that what we're really lacking, uh, and it may be because the social media have stepped in to take the place of this, what we're really lacking is some kind of um, collaborative forum that is an action that I used to think belonged to the citizens of the country, uh, possibly uh, directed by the president or energized by the president. Every all the other organs of uh, our go- of our government and our economic structure even seem to be compartmentalized, and that's the only way you can get the Scott work done is compartmentalization. But college is more and more a, a online experience with, that doesn't doesn't encourage synthetic synthesizing thought. Uh, ditto high school, I think, and. Um, uh, and we're not really uh, – we don't have the kind of leisure or the kind of gatherings where people mm-hmm. can actually look at the situation. And, and alas, not everybody reads The Nation, and I really wish they did. Ah. But they don't, they don't take the time or have the time maybe to reflect on a thoughtful piece of writing. How can, how can that synthesizing feature of a, of a democratic society be re-energized if, if you agree that it, it needs it? Well, very well raised question, my friend. And, and of course, uh, we need that in our society. But luckily, we're moving in the wrong direction. Um, if you look at what's happened, we've had an atomization of our media so that, that in our media, we don't have shared spaces in which we, you know, discuss issues. And mm. 
you know, remember, historically, we always had liberal and conservative newspapers, um, you know, more liberal commentators, more conservative commentators. But uh, they they often, you know, were at least in the same space or at least, um, you know, had respect for the other side. Now what you're getting is siloing where uh, people aren't talking to one another. And um, and in school, uh, as you train people at the high school level and then at the college level to go into society unfortunately um you know we we're even if you do train them well or give them good uh lessons on how to to be more communal how to talk to one another how to communicate with one another once they move into society they they move into this incredibly siloed and increasingly siloed reality hmm. so and and Ruthann, you know, and, and I know Scott and, and Richard do, um, I've spent a lot of my life working on media reform issues. And one of the things we've always said about media reform is that, you know, we need a good media system in this country with a lot of public broadcasting, a lot of community stations like this one that are well-funded, that can produce fair, accurate, honest news, um, and that can have honest, deep discourse uh, that people can participate in. When you diminish that, then you move the discourse out into social media and often out into places where lies, fantasies, um, you know, misinformation thrives. And and so uh, there's a lot to do in this regard. And it is an, with an understanding that education and media reform need to go together. And at the heart of that is creating a media system creating an education system that is sustaining of democracy, that encourages democracy, so that at the end of the day, um, our society um, produces a, a discourse uh, that leads to electoral results that reflect the will of the American people, not the will of you know big media companies or corporate special interests. John, I, I have another media question for you. Re- Republicans have promised in the House to hold hearings and investigations, as well as even impeachment proceedings. They they want to target the FBI, the Biden administration officials like uh, Homeland Security. Biden's son, Hunter, of course, is on the menu. And there's no doubt that Republicans like Jim Jordan will base these hearings on disinformation, as you just talking about, conspiracy theories and innuendo designed to fire up the right-wing base and the Fox News audience However, there's potential for much more damage if the corporate news media provides a daily national platform for these GOP inquisitions, as they did with the Republican effort to damage Hillary Clinton before the 2016 election with almost three years of the Benghazi hearings. How important is it for corporate media to shine a harsh light on the Republicans' true intentions and their credibility in these investigations and not allow themselves to be used as a propaganda tool in advance of the 2024 presidential and congressional election? Well, um, you get to the heart of the matter, of course. Look, it's the job of media to provide perspective, right? And if the Democrats have done something wrong, um, you know, it's, it, media should be reporting on that and be very, very clear on it. If Republicans have done something wrong, same thing. Um, but if there is radical disproportionality or, you know, frankly, misinformation or lies, you know, a, a wrongheaded approach, media should call that out. And and one of the problems that we've had is, is that lack of, per, of perspective and a both siderism. 
you know, the suggestion that, oh, Republicans do bad things. Democrats do bad things. They're all bad people. And today we'll be focusing on the bad Republicans. Tomorrow we'll focus on the bad Democrats uh, without a sense of, you know, who's who's doing uh, worse, who's doing more, who's going to greater extremes, who's lying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's that's where perspective comes in. And historically, look, there are times in our history where an, an honest, responsible media uh, would point to great wrongdoing and, and flaws on the part of Democrats. There's no doubt of that. Um, but there are also times in our history where um, you've got Republicans in Congress, uh, in this case, who I think are really trying to leverage Congress for purely partisan, purely mm-hmm. political, and to some extent ideological purposes. And yes, that ought to be understood. That ought to be discussed. And frankly, you know, if you look at the model of the BBC in, in the United Kingdom, which is certainly imperfect, and many people criticize the BBC, but at the BBC, if you see you know, their coverage of uh, political figures, it's far more uh, intense, far more uh, combative than it is uh, here in the States. And if somebody sat down with, you know, sort of a bunch of fantasies or even a bunch of, you know, relatively irrelevant complaints, um, in, in a BBC journalist would, would call them out. Um, and too frequently in the States, uh, uh, over the years, we've seen a case where, it's sort of treated as, oh, you know, here's here's what these people say, and then the other people may criticize it, but without giving the depth of analysis that, frankly, is necessary. That's one of the reasons why you have this show, right? It is to give that deeper analysis, and um, would that we had it, you know, and had that deeper analysis in programs across the country, and particularly on our very, very powerful national media. And just thinking about Hillary Clinton's emails, right? As an example of this, uh, as as being the false equivalent of rape charges against Trump and his lying and cheating and all manner of craziness. That's exactly it. And just following on that, and Scott's very good point about the way this is going to lead up to the 2024 election. You know, there is this sort of election industrial complex that the media (laughs) engages in. You know, it's a commercial operation. And what they're trying to do, I think, by doing the both sidesism that you referred to, John, is to turn it into the horse race and thereby jack up their traffic on their on their media outlets. And so it's. This issue is so critical. In the past, I've sort of advocated that some of the mass demonstrations people mobilize for should be directed at these giant media outlets. You know, there should be 50,000 people standing outside of CNN, MSNBC, maybe even Fox, you know, and just saying, no mas. We want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear this garbage about on the one hand and on the other hand. We need facts and we need substantial coverage and analysis of the type you refer to coming from the BBC. Right. I mean, I think you're getting to the heart of the matter. And, you know, Bobby Chesney and I and, you know, other folks were involved better part of 20 years ago in forming a media reform movement in this country, or at least building out a media reform movement. And one of the things that we argued was that people can and should understand media as an issue, that the environment's an issue, war and peace, that's an issue. Um, you know, economic concerns, these are issues. These are all issues of consequence. And um, we understand that we should talk about them. We should debate them. We should have perspectives and opinions. Um, but often with media, we think it's just something that happens to us. We don't have you know, any say in where our media goes or what it does or how it operates. And um, 
I, I think that, that that's something that needs to change, and people have to be much more comfortable criticizing existing media. But also, it's not just about criticism. It's also about um, an expansion of building out and saying um, there are ways to make our media better in this country. Most countries around the world have massively greater funding of public broadcasting and of community broadcasting than the United States does. As a result, in those countries, uh, they have a very different discourse than we have and a much more open and, I think, um, useful discourse <laughs> quite often, where instead of being influenced by campaign ads funded by corporate special interests, by wealthy people, billionaires, etc., and by lobbying, um, you have a uh, discourse that is, you know, rooted in uh, a public media, real debate. Uh, party broadcasts, which certainly express the views of a political party, but that come with at least some standards. So it isn't just this slurry of negativism, mm. you know, which really is an effort to basically depress the vote. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, as regards media issues, we can learn a lot from other countries, but we can also have our own models that are better than what we have today. John, I think we're, we're getting to the end of our conversation. I, I just wanted to ask you briefly to comment on the controversy that's brewing over whether or not Joe Biden should run in 2024. Roots Action, a group I know you're aware of, uh, they have a campaign running called Don't, Don't Run Joe. And, uh, you know, there's concern about him and who he might be put up against, Ron DeSantis, uh, Trump again. But what's your view? It's probably not too early to start thinking about this. No, it's never too early to talk about presidential politics, because um, for better or worse, uh, we live in a society which is kind of 24-7 election cycle, mm -hmm. 365 days a year. Whether that's good or bad, uh, people can debate. I think it's a little unhealthy because it takes us away from thinking about governing uh, once you get power. But the fact is, you can't deny that reality. So a lot of people are talking about 2024. At this point, what I will tell you is that the results of the 2022 election cycle strengthened Biden because uh, the Democrats did better than expected. And also, frankly, in the last stages of that campaign, Biden did a couple of speeches on democracy uh, and on some other issues that I think really did benefit um, the Democratic message. And so there's a sense, I think, among a lot of Democratic strategists, a lot of Democratic insiders, that Biden is probably their best candidate. Not their ideal candidate, and that's a different, that's a very different standard, but probably their best going into a cycle, um, which could be very difficult, could be very challenging. Biden, a proven commodity, somebody who's already mm -hmm. beaten Trump, and the possibility that Trump could, although certainly not guaranteed, be the candidate again. Um, so there'll be an in, there'll be a lot of pressure to you know put this together for Biden. But as I travel around the country, one of the things that's very striking to me is that when I talk to uh, grassroots Democrats and independents who lean toward the Democrats, um, there's a real discomfort um, with the idea of um, you know of, of running Biden for a second term. Uh, there's a lot of people who have real concerns about this and who uh, would prefer that the party looked elsewhere. Um, and I, I don't think you should dismiss that. That's a very, from a political standpoint, that's a very unwise thing to, to say, oh, um, you know, don't even bring that up. Don't even raise that prospect. That's what 
Republicans did in 2020 with Trump. They they you know said you know Trump's it. They even they even canceled primaries around the country to make sure that it just you know went through without much of a a debate. And um, I don't think it's a healthy way to go. So if Ruth Action is raising the issue, um, and if they get traction for for that discussion, you know that's on Biden to um, respond effectively to right. to make it clear that he is the strongest candidate. Uh, again, I think he's got a lot of advantages there, but um, I also think that that it's fine to have that discourse, um, and it's healthy for a political party. Now, at the end of the day, uh, I suspect that choices about who the Democratic nominee will be, whether it be Biden or somebody else, uh, will be locked in during the course of 2023. And, you know, we talked a lot in earlier portions of this program about um, using the bully pulpit effectively. And to my mind, that's sort of the key to the thing. If Biden is a very effective president on using the bully pulpit, on defending Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, other programs, then, um, you know, he will be in a position somewhat, obviously, history very, very different, but somewhat like that of Harry Truman in 1948. Truman was not a popular president going into the 48 election. There were an awful lot of Democrats who wanted somebody else, anybody else, to be their nominee. Even going in to the Democratic convention in 48, there was an effort to replace him with Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and so uh, it just wasn't, you know, he, he really had to struggle uh, to to position himself, but he did. And then he went on to, to win quite effectively by campaigning against what he referred to as the do-nothing Republican Congress. Um, Biden, Truman, very different figures. 1948, 2024, very different years, of course. But still that, that core concept that if you become the effective voice of your party in opposition to another party that is threatening, damaging, dangerous, whatever, however you portray it, um, your likelihood of being the nominee is is much greater. And so Truman ended up as the nominee and the winner in 48 because he really did use the bully pulpit very, very effectively. And, you know, a long answer, I suppose, to a, a simple question. Uh, for Biden, uh, that's the real challenge and the real responsibility in 2023 going toward 2024. Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with us on uh, Resistance Roundtable this morning. We much appreciate all your important work at The Nation magazine and elsewhere we write about U.S. politics. And uh, we'll look forward to our next conversation, which hopefully will be soon. I hope it will be soon as well. It's a great, uh, great opportunity to be talking with all three of you. And I wish you luck in 2023. I, I suspect that this is a year that's going to give you a lot to talk about on, on your program. Absolutely. Thanks again, John. Talk soon. Bye, John. Thank you, John. Take care. That's John Nichols, Nation Magazine's national correspondent. And Ruth Ann, as we wind down this first program of the new year, you have a rant for us, don't you? Oh, well, let me look at my watch here. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I have a little rant. I'm starting my uh, my uh, and, and, timer. Yeah. And the, do I have time? <laughs> I have a little rant, and it may seem trivial compared to um, how women are being treated currently in Iraq. Um, but I think it's interesting. Today's Connecticut Mirror included this. All women's slate will lead Congress's effort to keep the government funded. 
all-woman slate. In the intensely divided 118th Congress, the job of leading bipartisan efforts to keep the government funded will belong to four women lawmakers for the first time ever. Those women are Senators Patty Murray and Susan Collins and Representatives Kay Granger and Connecticut's Rosa DeLauro, leaders of the House and Senate Appropriations Panel. Meanwhile, Yahoo News headlines other legislative news this way. The new year is already off to a perfect start for women in this country. Roe versus Wade is history. Pro-rape um, nanosphere bloggers, oh, sorry, manosphere bloggers are more popular than ever. And if you're a woman in Missouri's state legislature, there's now greater clarity as to what you can and can't wear on the state house floor. And that, let's follow that sartorial thread. Missouri state lawmakers kicked off this year's legislative session with a prolonged debate to amend the dress code for women lawmakers, who comprise just a third of the state legislature. The debate over changes to House rules largely involved women's right to bear arms. That's B-A-R-E, the reporter wrote uh. on, the, on the House floor. And the extent to which their attire should be policed, said the St. Louis Dispatch. CNN's Shauna Mizell reports that the new rule proposed by Republican State Representative Ann Kelly requiring them to cover their shoulders by wearing a jacket like a blazer cardigan or knit blazer sparked outrage from some Democrats who said the change was sexist because the dress code for men was not altered. Men in the Missouri House of Representatives are required to wear a jacket, shirt, and tie. That's it. I don't know about the trousers. Um, But that's how they have to cover their Shoulders, I guess. Um, The previous dress code for women required dresses or skirts or slacks or slacks worn with a blazer or sweater and appropriate dress shoes or boots. And while the day's discussions would go on to cover rules around issues like committee business and public hearings, NPR's Rachel Treisman reports that Representative Kelly's proposed amendment would require women to wear jackets defined as both blazers and knit blazers because, quote, it is essential to always maintain a formal and professional atmosphere. Several House Democrats derided the proposal as sexist, impractical, and even hypocritical. Yep, the caucus that lost their minds over the suggestion that they should wear masks during a pandemic to respect the safety of others is now spending its time focusing on the fine details of what women have to wear, specifically how to cover their arms, and to show respect here, tweeted Democratic Representative Peter Meredith. As another lawmaker said, there are some very serious things that are in this rule package that I think we should be debating, but instead we are fighting again for a woman's right to choose something, and this time it's how, to sh- how she covers herself. Hmm. Representative Ashley on questioned how such a requirement could even be enforced. Would, would uh, silk count? <laughs> Do you know what, th- what it feels like? This is the crux. Do you know what it feels like to have a bunch of men in this room looking at your top, trying to decide whether it's appropriate or not? On asked. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's basically what's going on. One more shot in the worldwide crusade to control the bodies of women. And as long as we are making rules about how people cover their bodies, I've got one prompted by my own sense of decorum during House hearings on Donald Trump's conduct a couple of summers ago, I would urge the U.S. Congress to adopt a rule that men who appeared without their jackets at public events be required to wear undershirts instead of giving us such an unsavory spectacle as Representative Jim Jordan's damp flesh through the clinging dress shirt (laughs) his sweat had made transparent. That was offensive. 
How am I going to get that image out of my head now? <laughs> I want it to stay. <laughs> I, I just have a short item here, uh, and this has to do with Brazil. The insurrectionist mob, and this is from an article by the Daily Kos. Uh The insurrectionist mob that descended on Brazil's Congress uh, last Sunday was fueled by conspiracy theories spread by the same Americans who organized the January 6th insurrections. It seems like there's a disturbing familiarity to the scenes of an insurrection mob overwhelming the Brazilian Congress Supreme Court buildings uh, last week, trashing the interior, fueled by phony conspiracy theories about a stolen election. There's a reason for that, they write. A number of the same people responsible for January 6th capital siege in the U.S. are also helping spread almost identical election lies in Brazil on behalf of right-wing autocrat Jair Bolsonaro. Indeed, a number of the leading MAGA figures in the U.S. who played key roles in the U.S. insurrection are now cheering on the attack. Brazilian, um, uh, actually Steve Bannon, uh, Ali Alexander, Jason Miller, and their supporting cast of disinformation artists. This time around, however, they are also being enabled by Twitter's Elon Musk, who's opened the floodgates in Brazil to the insurrectionist movement there. Some of the conspiracism came from predictable quarters. The Gateway pundits Joe Hoft and uh, a lot of other on the right uh, who apparently don't believe in democracy either here in the U.S., Brazil, or anywhere else. It's really frightening when you think about that. And just to close this thing off, I think the real concern here is that none of these architects of the U.S. Uh, insurrection have been held accountable. Trump uh, and all these other folks, and now they are free to spread their poison all over the world, including, you know, violence and insurrections to come here in the U.S. Accountability is key, and it's disturbing, uh, angerifying that uh, our Attorney General Merrick Garland has not moved to indict these folks. They just continue to undermine democracy here and abroad. And it's interesting that in Brazil we have a model of what should and could be done here in the States where many more people were rounded up right after the attack on the Capitol. And now Lula da Silva is pursuing the actual planners of the attack and also, I think, contemplating freezing Bolsonaro's bank account because they are are supposing that he is somehow responsible for all this. So this is a model of what could be done in, in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really important. We, we've actually got to run. Thanks for joining us on Resistance Roundtable, where we focus on local and nationwide organizing. And our next program will be Saturday, February 11th. We hope you'll stay tuned. Lots more here on WPKN in Bridgeport.